So here we are then, it's the uh, 31st of December, the end of one year, and tomorrow the beginning of a new one. So what should be filling our thoughts and our minds? What should we be thinking about? Our reading that we've just had comes from the end of the first book of Chronicles and leads into the new second book of Chronicles. So it was indeed uh, an ending and a beginning. It was the end, just about, the end of the reign of King David, and very soon he would uh, die, go be the Lord, and it would be the beginning of the reign of his son Solomon, King Solomon. So it's in between the one and the other. So what was uppermost in David's mind? What was he thinking about uh, at this moment in his life, this particular transition? Uh, And especially as a result of this great fundraising campaign that he had had in order for his son Solomon to build a temple for the Lord, which was what David wanted to do. But God said, no, it wouldn't be him, David, who would do it, but his son Solomon. And so David has provided uh, so much already, uh, and now he's appealing to the people and the leaders to provide the rest. So let's look at his prayer, particularly from verses 10 to uh, 18 together, uh, to see what it should mean for us as a church to be praying like David into the coming year, 2024, along with one or two other Old Testament characters in the, in the weeks ahead. Uh, as Jonathan said, uh, we'll be particularly focusing on prayer in the coming year, and Charlie asked if we could have some sermons at least on prayers from Old Testament characters. Uh, And this is the one that I chose for today, praying like David. Now, when we look at this prayer together, it seems to me that there are three elements that I want to bring us forward. The the third will be quite brief, so don't be too worried if the first two seem rather long. And the first, as it says, is the way in which his prayer begins in verses 10 to 13. Yours, Lord, he says several times, is it yours, Lord? Now, when we actually look at the first half of the chapter, the first nine verses, it's clear that this was an extraordinarily extravagant occasion. It was an appeal to the people, but the whole sequence of events keeps on emphasizing David, David's power, David's wealth, David's kingship, David's generosity. Here is great David, as he's called in in one of our Christmas songs. Great David offering great wealth with great plans for a great project that he has to build this temple. And yet, when you look at his prayer, from verses 10 to 13 especially, the first movement of his prayer is to point away from himself, possibly with some great gesture up to the heavens, as it were. No, no, he points up to God, yours, Lord, he says in verse 11, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and so on. You see, yes, David David was indeed great. He had become great, majestic, splendid as a king. But who was truly great? You, Lord. Yes, David was the owner of great wealth, all the wealth of his own country and the tribute of a few other nations around that he had conquered. But who was the owner of everything? You, Lord. And David, of course, in this whole passage, it's emphasized that he was the king. David, the king, it says several times. And yet who was the real king, the universal ruler of everywhere? You, Lord. 
So do you see what's happening here is that at every significant point where David himself was being honored and respected and admired, he deflects that honor and glory up up from himself to God. Yours, Lord, is everything. In other words, David is doing what Psalm 115 begins by inviting all God's people, including us, to do. It says, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name be the glory, because of your love and faithfulness. Or as we say in the Lord's Prayer, as we already have today, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Now I think there are perhaps two things that we could take from this first half of David's prayer here in verses 10 to 13. And the first one is, to take David as a positive example or a healthy example that we might take for ourselves. You see, it's true, isn't it, that David had achieved great success in his long life and reign and career. And yes, of course, as Jonathan reminded us, some pretty terrible sins and failures as well. He was a flawed sinner, just like every one of us. But still, as a great leader... He had unified the tribes of Israel after the fragmentation of Saul and the period of the judges. He had consolidated and organized his state into a fairly powerful little one in that region. He had defeated the Philistines and other enemies. He had even survived an insurrection and a civil war within his own family, albeit that that was generated by his own folly. So, Within all of this, God had blessed him with very considerable achievements and success and wealth. But here, he deflects all that kudos, all that glory that God had privileged him with up to God, to the God to whom he owed everything. Now, I don't know about you, but for some of us at least, I expect that 2023 last year may have brought some measure of success one way or another, perhaps at work, perhaps a promotion, or even getting a job in the first place, or some achievement that you are quite rightly and appropriately pleased about that you've managed in this year to accomplish either again in work or perhaps in sport or in some leisure activity. Perhaps you're rejoicing in the joy of a blossoming new relationship uh, or within your family, or maybe you're just praying that 2024 will bring something like that. But here's the question, what do you do with such success? How do you cope with achievement? And then the praise, the honor that tends to go along with that. People sometimes say very nice things to us, don't they? Sometimes very flattering things. And of course, it may be perfectly genuine uh, and well-meant, or in some cultures, it can be a little bit formal and superficial, but still, it's nice to hear. It may be to your face. It may be on Facebook or all the other media that are there. Lots of appreciation. And of course, it is a good thing when people say encouraging things to us and to one another. It is right and good to give praise and honor where it's due. But what about when you're on the receiving end of that, or when you're just feeling a bit pleased with yourself because of something you've managed to accomplish? 
Well, I want to suggest from this text that the only healthy thing to do is to do what David does here, and that is to reflect it upwards. Either in your heart, at least in your heart, in quiet prayer, as people say nice things to you, or possibly in public prayer, as David does here, uh, and just simply to say, Lord, thank you, but this is really for you. Lord, thank you for whatever ability or accomplishment I've been able to achieve by the gifts that you have given me. It's all from you and it's all for you. Lift it up to God. Because you see, if you don't do that, then it's so easy for the, the deadly sin of pride to start eating into our hearts. You actually make the mistake of starting to believe what people say about you. <laughs> which can be very dangerous. It's like believing your own press release or taking, a, taking the credit for achievements which, in reality, are simply God's gifting to you. I just wonder whether Moses, sorry, David at this point was maybe perhaps reflecting on the warning that Moses had given the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 8 when God was bringing the Israelites into a very rich and prosperous land and he was warning them that the possibility would be that when they'd get there, they would flourish so much that they would forget him. Uh, Let me read to you what he says here in Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'll just start a little bit now and bring it up on the screen. Moses says, when you eat and are satisfied, that's pretty much right now, isn't it, after Christmas? When you eat and are satisfied, and when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your silver and gold increase and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And then this passage where God says, or Moses says, you may say to yourself, "Hmm, my power and the strength of my hands have produced all this wealth for me. That's the yuppie's boast, isn't it? Yeah, it's all mine because I did it, I accomplished it. But, says Moses, remember, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. In other words, it all comes from him in the first place. All your gifts, all your experience, all your education, all your opportunities, even every breath that you breathe, it all comes from the Lord. So it's very human, isn't it, to take credit for ourselves. It's very human to do that, but it can be very dangerous. Perhaps that's why Jesus said, beware when everyone speaks well of you. Jesus said that. John Stott used to say, because people said wonderful things about him, he was always being praised and flattered. And John Stott would say, you know, flattery is like cigarette smoke. It does you no harm so long as you don't inhale it. (laughs) Don't breathe it in. Don't let it sink in. However kindly it's meant, don't let it feed your pride. No, just let it waft gently up to God because he alone is worthy of it. And that brings us to the second point that we want to see here, which is under this yours, Lord, from uh, David's healthy example to God's awesome greatness. Just look at those verses 11 and 12 again, if you can look down. Aren't they stupendous? All the things that they say about God, greatness, power, glory, majesty, splendor, and so on, it's incredible. This God... Yahweh God, the Lord God of Israel, this little, really relatively tiny little kingdom there in the Middle East, 
But this God of Israel is the universal owner of all things and all people. And he's the universal ruler of all things and all people, says David. Incredible affirmations. That there is nothing in the universe that God does not own. And there's nowhere in the universe where God is not king. It's so easy for us to read verses like this and just let them sort of drift over us. You know, Yeah, 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 this is what we believe about God. But there's something absolute here, something total, something ultimate reality about this God who stands behind the whole universe in ownership and sovereignty. And of course, as we now stand, unlike David, we stand this side of the cross and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that this claim, these very words, could be spoken about Jesus. Indeed, it is precisely the claim that he made for himself. Crucified and risen Jesus on the Mount of Ascension calmly says to his disciples words that could only be spoken by the Lord God himself. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, said Jesus on the Mount of Ascension. He is Lord. He is King. These words apply to him. And it's a claim that the Apostle Paul, of course, expanded in even more incredible words in Colossians, where Paul writes this about Jesus. He says, for to him, he says uh, on the screen, to in him, rather, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, with their thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that is, in Jesus of Nazareth, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, again, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. And to him belongs everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth by right of creation and preservation and redemption. So as you, as we, as we go out into 2024, this coming year, whatever it brings, you go out into his world. There's nowhere that does not belong to him already. There is no place where Christ is not ultimately Lord and God That authority that he speaks of, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not thwarted by no-go areas here or there. No, says Jesus, all authority in heaven and earth, there's nowhere else. And all authority is his. Now, of course, you may have to negotiate and struggle with human authorities on this earth in this lifetime. Human authorities in the workplace, or indeed opposition at home, or simply from friends and the culture. And that struggle can be extremely tough, and indeed it may well bring suffering. But we need to remember that we live under a higher authority than any human one, and that is the kingship, the lordship of God in Christ. 
And when you pray like David, as we want to do, when you pray like David does here, then you remember that. And you, you, you say that to yourself again and again. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom, the glory, and the power. And you remember it with thankfulness. And then you feed on it for courage and for strength. Yours, Lord, is the greatness, the power. Yours, Lord Christ, is the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord Christ, is the kingdom. Because you are exalted over all. Yours, Lord. That's our first point. But we need to move on from yours, Lord, uh, as David puts it in those opening verses, to me, Lord. Who am I? And we move from the universality of God to the humility of David in the second half of his prayer. Who am I, he says. Can you see it there in verse 14? Who am I? And my people, that we can do this thing. Now, this is actually the second time that David had said this to God. Do you remember right back at the beginning of his reign, uh, when he wanted first to build a house for God, and God said, no, not you, Nathan the prophet told David that God would build him a house, meaning his household, his family, and that his kingdom, the kingdom of his sons, would be established forever. Something that, of course, we know was only ever fulfilled in great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But when, when Nathan quoted God's word and made that promise from God to David, David, this is what we read, King David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, who am I, Lord God? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? You, Lord God, you have looked on me as though I were the most exalted of men. Well, now, by this time, at the end of his reign, David would indeed seem to be among the most exalted of men. But it's almost as if he can't believe it. Who am I, he says in this verse, in amazement. Who am I? And when we read verses 14, 15, and 16, each verse seems to add something to this really rather beautiful expression of humility from David. Here's the first. The first is that there's a sense of privilege in verse 14. Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we've given you only what comes from your hand. It almost feels as if David is genuinely surprised at the way God had privileged him with such responsibility and leadership and power, how God had protected him on multiple occasions, how God had graciously preserved his kingdom, even through the, the, his own sin and folly. Who, who am I, Lord, that all this has happened to me? Now, I don't think this is any kind of false humility. It's not as if David is thinking, you know, I'm not really any good at anything at all. No, no, no. Even as a young lad, a young shepherd boy, David knew his own gifts and skills and strengths. As Goliath could tell you, if he still had a head on his shoulders uh, after his confrontation with young David. So, yeah, David had gifts and abilities. But there's this sense of wonder and amazement 
that God should have given him such privilege and bless him so richly and give him such success, such that now, by the end of his life, he's actually able to make this incredibly generous gift of wealth for the building of a temple for his God. Who am I? Why me? Why me? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? When you're being blessed and successful and achieving things. We usually ask it the other way, Ryan, when things go wrong or badly in our lives. Now, well, why me? What have I done to deserve this? But no, no, here's the right place to ask it. When things go well and we're experiencing God's gifts and God's blessings and God's good things, who am I? Why me? Speaking from my own personal experience, there have been several times when I have felt that kind of surprise on occasions when I've been asked to take on some new role or some new calling from God and all the trust and responsibilities that it brings. I remember how surprised I was even back at school and in university in the 1960s. Who am I, I thought, to be asked to be the leader of the Christian Union in both places? Who am I, I thought also, when the vicar of the church that we used to worship at as a young family in Cambridge in the 1970s, and the vicar urged me to consider ordained ministry in the Church of England. Who am I to become a pastor among God's people or a minister of God's word and God's sacraments? When John Stott asked me to take on the leadership of the ministry that he had founded within the Langham Partnership, uh, just over 20 years ago, I remember he took me for a meal uh, in Di Martino's, which is an Italian restaurant there on Great Portland Street, and I asked him two questions. What would the job involve, and why me? And I don't think I got a clear answer to either question. <laughs> and even here today, as I stand here before you, I say to myself, who am I? to preach and teach God's word to you who are God's people? Who am I to dare to write books that try to help people understand the Bible better? Who am I? And I, I'm just a wee Belfast boy by origin and a sinner by nature, saved by grace, and with this incredible, amazing privilege to use some of the gifts that God has entrusted me with for his glory and for the benefit of his people. Who am I? That's all. And the rest is just amazement. Amazement at the grace and patience of God over a lifetime, as it was, I think, for David. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, as the hymn sings, and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Well, that's just me. What about you? Again, I don't know what privileges God may have given you in this past year or what opportunities and openings may lie ahead for you by God's grace in the coming year, but... Please never forget to ask this question, who am I? Because, you see, it will dissolve any sense of entitlement or pride. Who am I?
to have this undeserved privilege of being a servant of the living God in any way, any way whatsoever. So there's a sense of privilege, but there's also a sense of pilgrimage. Can you see it in verse 15? David says, we, that's we, the Israelites, we're foreigners and strangers in your sight, as were all our ancestors, our days on earth like a shadow without hope. We're foreign. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that God doesn't even know who they are? Well, of course not. They were God's chosen people, but it's not as if they were literally foreigners. What David means is that even as God's people Israel loved and chosen by him, they were like people just passing through, like temporary residents, like our ancestors, he says, by which, of course, he means Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the book of Genesis, who lived in the land and camped in the land, but owned none of it. So, you see, their security of of the answers, their security was in God, not in title deeds or ownership. No, no, they were like pilgrims, just lodging, sojourning, aware of the transience, the shortness of life, even a long life, like the life of Abraham, who was constantly looking forward, as Hebrews tells us. So David says this, we're just like strangers, we're like pilgrims in this land, which is a bit ironic, really, because it was David himself who had given Israel secure possession of the land by defeating the Philistines and uniting the tribes and so on. So yeah, he had built a kingdom in this land, and yet he wants to remind the people of their utter dependence on God. You see, just because he and the people together were making this great gift of wealth and resources to God, they must resist the temptation of entitlement, as I said a little earlier. It's not as if they were going to say, yeah, my Lord, this is land and all its wealth, it's all ours, but, you know, we can share some of it with God, can't we? Yes, of course, we can let God have a stake in our abundance. No, no, no. God isn't anybody's stakeholder. And God doesn't have stakeholders. The fact that David and Israel were giving so much to build a temple for God created no claim on God, no rights, no advantageous negotiating position, no quid pro quo. These are pilgrims, verse 15, not dealers. See, dealers stake their claims and demand something in return. Pilgrims pull up their stakes and move on. So again, as you, as we move forward into 2024, will you go with a pilgrim heart? Just holding things lightly. Watching out for that sneaky sense of entitlement that so easily creeps into our hearts because it's so prevalent in our culture. That sense of rights and duties. Surely God owes me this much at least after all I've done for him. Oh no, don't treat God as if he owes you a favor. Just live every day as a pilgrim with faith and with gratitude for all the grace and favor that he pours out upon us in Christ every day of our lives.
So there's a sense in, you, uh, in me, there's a sense here of, uh, of privilege and of pilgrimage. And thirdly, there's a sense of paradox when we come to verse 16. And you read it there, verse 16. Lord God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it all comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. Now, let's be quite clear at this point. This was a moment of real giving. I mean, you just read again or just glance down at verses 1 to 9. This was a massive offering by David, by the leaders, and by all the people. It could be counted in thousands and hundreds of thousands of talents, whatever they were precisely. This was a kind of sacrifice. It was costly. It was generous. And it's acknowledged as such in the narrative. It talks about enthusiasm and joy. It's a wonderful gift of generosity. But whose was it all anyway? Where had it all come from? And you see, this is the paradox, and it really is a paradox when you think about it, that we cannot really give to God anything that is not already his. Because David has just said in verse 11 that everything in heaven and earth belongs to God. So if everything already belongs to him, we are simply giving back to God what is already his. But that doesn't demean, that doesn't diminish the gift. It doesn't make it unimportant. It doesn't mean that God isn't pleased with it. We've just been through Christmas. But think of a child who makes a lovely birthday card for her mother as a gift for her birthday. Well, of course, everything that that child will use to make the card comes from her mum's cupboards, you know, been bought ages ago. The, the paper itself, the crayons, the stickies, the scissors, the glue, and even the chocolate stains. I mean, it's all, in a sense, there that the child has used. But does the mother say when she opens the oh, well, this is very nice, dear, but, you know, you've really just used stuff that belonged to me anyway in the first place. No, of course not. It's received the way it was created because it was created with love and with gratitude and it's received with love and gratitude, as is anything that we give to God. It's a reciprocal blessing, but it's still a paradox, isn't it? It's our abundance, but it's what already belongs to him for what he's done for us. Everything comes from you, and of your own have we given you. How often have we said that in church? Every service we say it. All things come from you, Lord, but of your own have we given you. But this is what it means. This is the paradox and the surprise of it. And we say that, of course, when we've had an offering or we've been thinking about our giving, but those words don't just apply to money, do they? And we just think about it here in this building today and week by week here at All Souls Church. Just think of the abundance of gifts, personalities, skills, life experience, strength, Families, singles, old and young, education, jobs, professions, nationalities and different cultures, relationships, all of that. It's quite incredible. Now, before we get a swelled head, of course, we're also a bunch of sinners and stiff-necked rebels just like the Israelites were. We need God's forgiveness and God's grace and patience every day, just as much as they did. But nevertheless, there's this rich multicolored, multi-talented community that calls itself 
All Souls Church. And still yet, by God's grace, we have such an abundance that we can rightly call ours, because this is our church, it's our community of faith, it's our ministries, it's our vision, it's our mission, it's who we are and what we do. So yes, in the coming year, we are going to give like these Israelites, we're going to give all that we can, generously, cheerfully, purposefully, to go on sustaining and growing this church here in this place for God's glory in this city and for years to come. Yes, we want to do that. It's our abundance for him. But let's always remember that all that we may give of ourselves or our money, our resources, it all comes from God himself. And we're giving it back to him. Yours, Lord, is everything in the first place. Me, Lord, who me? What a sense of privilege and pilgrimage and paradox. And that leads us thirdly and more briefly to our third point. From yours, Lord, and me, Lord, to us, Lord, in verses 17 and 18. Because it's actually only now that David makes a specific request in his prayer. And the request that he makes is brief, but it's very important, and it's focused on the heart. Because if you see there in verse 17, the first thing he says is that God tests the heart. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. I know, says David, that you test the heart. How did he know that, do you think? Could it be perhaps that Samuel had told David what God had told Samuel at the time when he had anointed David, who at that time was the youngest of his brothers and nevertheless was anointed as the future king. And God had said to Samuel, you know, people look on the outside, but God looks on the heart. And what he wants to find there is integrity. The heart, of course, in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, it's not the seat of our emotions It's the seat of our will, our intentions. This is in the heart is where you think about things and make your decisions. It's the heart that governs your actions. And God wants integrity in our hearts. That is when our words and our actions and our motives are really what they seem to be in reality. When there's no contradiction between what we're saying and what we're actually thinking. When there's no hidden agenda or some kind of hypocritical virtue signaling. And here at this point, David is claiming in this verse that he himself and all his people are acting with integrity in this free and generous giving. So let's pray, if we're going to pray like David, let's pray that we'll be able to say the same thing as a church in this coming year. That we are acting with integrity as a community of faith Not just in terms of all the issues that are facing us, as many of us know, in the Church of England right now, but in all our life and work as a church, in our finances, in our decisions, in the PCC, for the policies we adopt, all the things that we are as a church community, let's remember that the Lord tests our hearts and is looking for integrity in order to be pleased with us. And will that be true for you personally in this coming year? in all that you do for God and all that you give to the church? This verse, 1 Chronicles 29, verse 17, was one of John Stott's favorite verses. I've heard him quote it often in sermons and in lectures. I know, my God, 
that you test the heart and you are pleased with integrity. So may our hearts pass that test and be pleasing to him. And therefore, finally, the actual prayer that David prays is that may God may establish our hearts. Can you see it there in verse 18? Lord, the God of our fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Israel, keep these desires and thoughts in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. You see, David rejoices in this great outpouring of love and generosity and commitment. Fantastically successful gift day it had been. But how long would it last? You see, David didn't want it just to be a one-off splurge of exceptional giving that would then quickly be forgotten as people just lapse back into normal fallen human selfishness and greed. David wants this grateful giving to God to become a a settled habit of the heart, a strong, purposeful pattern of life, something that would be regular and thoughtful and committed and heartfelt, as we might say. And most of all, he wanted the people's generosity to the Lord's temple to be an outworking of their loyalty to the Lord himself. Keep their hearts loyal to you, he prayed. Well, let's pray like David in this coming year then as we close for our church, for our leaders, for our rector, Charlie Screen, for all those who lead within the organization and for ourselves as a community that God will keep our hearts loyal to him as David prayed, faithful to God's word, committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel, let's pray that God will keep us humble, grateful, and every day amazed at the joy and the privilege of being able to give and serve and work together for the truth. Remembering as we go out into this next year that everything in heaven and earth belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and are ruled by him for his glory and for our ultimate good. Let's pray together before we sing our last wonderful song of praise. The band will be coming up as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words of David. Thank you for recording them in the scriptures for us. We pray that you will keep us indeed humble and faithful, aware that everything we have comes from you and that we serve you as our Lord and our King. And we go out into this next year with that as our confidence and our courage. For We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.